0: Studios. Last week on Norco
1: 80. I was in kind of half a daze,
2: getting ready to pass out. Yeah, I'm going to sit here and freeze, I'm
1: gonna find Chris, go to jail, and you now it's nice
2: and warm. When they talk about the arming of
3: police in America, it starts here. It starts with the narco bank robbery. <sighs> Let's put it this way, I would rather go through the shooting again than have to put up what I had to put up with in court. And what they called me, what they said, I was doing what I was reading in my newspaper when I got home, that I killed Evans.
0: The press referred to the remaining robbers, Chris Harvin, Russ Harvin, and George Smith, as the Norco Three. The Norco Three were held at the Riverside County Jail. And about a week and a half after they were arrested, they had some visitors.
1: It is 10.01 hours. 51980 the following will be with Ms Estrada and inmate Chris Harvin.
0: The police made recordings of some of these visits, and in them, you can hear it's the first time the robbers had to explain what they did to friends and family. One morning, Chris Harvin, George's roommate and old coworker from the parks department, met with his new girlfriend of 3 months, Olivia Estrada.
4: I wrote you a nice letter explaining everything. I was gonna get a a stamp, you know, I get stamped envelopes today. I
0: was gonna
1: bring you some stamps, but I didn't.
0: I Chris Harvin, who had problems with infidelity in his marriage, according to his ex-wife, had been seeing multiple women in the lead up to the robbery, including Olivia. When she visited, she sat on one side of a plexiglass barrier, speaking through a telephone to Chris.
4: I just went berserk you know things were going down in my life at that period of time that I didn't like you, you were one of the only things that were you know a shining woman you know
0: Chris tried to explain to Olivia why all of this had happened but
4: I thought I was making you happy you were
0: you are you know You're beautiful today I
4: know I let you down a lot shocked. i shocked I'm shocked too I didn't know what I was doing
0: they talked about the slug he still had under the skin of his chest. Chris told Olivia he was worried she was being harassed by the press. Poor Olivia, he told her.
4: Poor Olivia. I need poor Olivia. Now you're suffering more than I am, really. I don't know where I went wrong. I straight off God's path for a moment. Here I am, Billy and Mary and George are all running out of cash so what was so important about that? Nothing. None of that's important. Yes, yeah. Now I realize that. I just want to look at you.
0: Chris told her, I just want to look at you.
4: Sorry you met me? No. I'll
1: never be sorry about it. I'll just never understand why that's
0: I'm Antonia Cerejido, and from Elias Studios and Futuro Studios, this is Norco 80, a series about God, guns, survivalism, and the bank robbery that changed policing forever. The ordeal of the Norco bank robbery didn't end with the arrest of the three remaining robbers. Their heavily covered, high profile trial would be the longest trial that Riverside County had ever seen. It was full of confusing and unexpected moments as the robbers faced the extensive evidence of their crimes. But before the trial even started, they would spend more than a year sitting in jail, processing what they did and trying to explain it to their families. Chapter 6, The
4: Trial. Outside of some legal miracle, it looks like, uh, I'll be either confined for an exceptionally long time or... uh... Do you know that? Oh yeah. I accept it.
1: It is nine forty-three hours. The next visit will be with Russell Harvin and his father.
0: Nine days into their jail stay, Russ Harvin, the quiet younger brother of Chris Harvin, was visited by his stepfather, Walt. Doing, oh, not bad. His mother was too distraught to come.
1: How's mom doing?
4: Oh, well, she's got to, you know, have a little time to get over this. She, uh, she didn't feel up to coming out today. She's uh, stuttering. Funny there, stuttering. When she gets over that, it just happens once in a while.
1: Yeah, i really sorry that this happened. happened. Well, I'm kind of sorry and I'm kind of glad because now I'm back to Christ. Yeah.
0: In jail, the robbers were retreating further into their religious beliefs. Russ said that the guards kept them away from other inmates.
1: — They don't let us have any contact with the prisoners at all because they're afraid we're going to infect the rest of the population, you know? They think we're revolutionaries or something. Uh. George's soul is right next to ours. We, can, we talk to him through the vent in the roof, you know? We're always, we're always finding things in the Bible that reaffirm our faith and show us that it's real, you know?
0: — Russ said that they talked to George through a vent in the roof. And they had all decided there had to be a divine reason they had survived the robbery.
1: Yeah, well, me and Chris, we figure, you know, um, Jesus Christ has got to have something, you know, some plan for us because, like, I had a head wound, Yeah. And went, went in, I traveled under the skin, and then went out, and, you know, I'm still alive. So we figured Jesus Christ is watching over us for something.
0: It's hard to tell whether his stepfather took this seriously. He tried to steer Russ towards the practical.
4: Oh, what did you want to do with your Volkswagen?
1: Uh, I guess, I don't know. What do you guys want to do with it? I'll never be driving it again.
4: Uh, I don't know what else to say, Russ.
0: Russ brought their conversation back to religion. He told his stepfather not to worry too much about his situation. He began reciting the signs that the end times were coming soon.
1: — don't despair too much. Okay? — uh, you know, we, we really believe that uh, you know, how edgy the Russians are getting. You know, they're gonna they attack the Whore of Babylon, which is the U.S., you know, like the right giant...
0: He said the Russians were going to attack the Whore of Babylon. The Whore of Babylon represents, for some Christians, the embodiment of moral decay, and her downfall is a sign of the apocalypse. To Russ, it represented a corrupt, indulgent United States, losing the Cold War to Russia. —
1: said about fire raining down from the sky, you know, a lot of stuff that can really be interpreted as only a nuclear war, you know. um, It talks about these different monsters, like, you know, weird weird kind of insects, and, uh, you know, mutations from radiation. We just just go to Christ, if we keep our faith,
4: stuff's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you guys have turned to the Bible. It gives us some solace.
0: The Norco 3 complained about how they were being treated. Russ said they weren't getting exercise and he wasn't getting enough insulin for his diabetes. The Norco 3 would later make an official complaint to the court. Saying they were intentionally prevented from sleeping and constantly subjected to cell searches.
1: Yeah. Every day, for the last three days in a row, they've been in there rousing our, rousing our cell. They don't let us get any sleep at night. You know, they're always banging doors, and opening and banging our door. And... I don't know what's usual in
4: this type of case, you know. This is a big one, I guess. Yeah, it's right Yeah.
0: This case was a big one for Riverside County. The Norco three would eventually each be charged with 46 counts, including kidnapping, arson, armed robbery, and first-degree murder. Russ and Chris Harvin would have private attorneys at trial. George Smith would be assigned a public defender.
5: Well, I remember the phone call coming into the public defender's office, and I remember all the attorneys and uh, you know, running around and, and uh, having meetings here and there. Debbie
0: Rose was working for the Riverside Public Defender's Office at the time. I asked her to describe herself. Oh, geez, now, now you're going to put me like
5: I'm having a job interview, and that's been a while.
0: <laughs> well, I'm fun. I'm a hard worker, always have been a hard worker. This was Debbie's first job out of high school. Delivering subpoenas, but even though she was young, she would get roped in to help on George Smith's defense.
5: Everybody liked me in the office. Jeannie, the investigator, needed help because it was you know we had to interview over a hundred people. I mean, they all were witnesses.
0: Debbie would be hired to help Jeannie Painter, the chief investigator. Part of Debbie's job was visiting George Smith at the Riverside County Jail, spending time going over notes with him on the case. I got this case
5: uh, right out of high school. I knew didn't know anything about you know the law or criminals or anything like that until I started working for the public defender's office. So I was very impressionable and innocent.
0: Debbie had never met someone like George before. Um,
5: he even wrote a book while he was in jail, and it's handwritten. It's not. I mean, it's, it was not published or anything. And it was called Armageddon. To me, I just thought that was Looney Tune. <laughs> you know, I didn't think that was going to happen during my lifetime. I mean, cause you know, I, I'm pretty religious myself and read the Bible and all that.
0: But she was determined to represent her client as well as she could. All three of the robbers' lawyers would petition the court to have their own separate trials. But the court ultimately decided the Norco 3 would be tried together. And because of the severity of their charges, all three were also eligible for the death penalty. At the Riverside County Jail, the Norco 3 knew that the chances of a not guilty verdict were bleak.
4: You got any valuables in your room that we should uh, know about? Put away for you. I don't know if we need any of that stuff. We're going straight to death row. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they uh, haven't convicted you yet, you know.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, No matter what they do to us here, our physical bodies, you know, it doesn't matter because we'll be spending eternity in heaven. It's better going to hell. Yeah.
0: Russ Harvin told his stepfather, no matter what they do to us here, our physical bodies, it doesn't matter. Because we'll be spending eternity in heaven.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's about the only consolation kind of we've been able to get by with. Yeah.
0: We'll be right back. we're back. According to Debbie Rose, the investigator's assistant on the defense, the stakes of this case could not be higher. It was like good versus
5: evil. That's how I best will I can put it. Bad versus good. It was supposed to be the DA was supposed to be good, <laughs> but for me it was just the opposite.
0: Debbie believed George Smith and the other robbers were just a group of people who were in a tough spot and made a bad decision.
5: He was going to be losing his house. He, you know, it was going in foreclosure. They all needed money. They were all desperate.
0: The defense team established that it had one goal.
5: We just did not want them to get the death penalty and sent to die. That's all we were trying. We, de- of course, could not deny that the crime occurred.
0: You know, that would be silly. On the prosecution side, they also had one goal. To prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the Norco 3 were guilty.
2: Prosecutors, the main thing that we have to do on very serious cases is to make sure nothing goes wrong. Because if a prosecutor is doing his or her job properly, you don't file losers into court. You don't.
0: This is Kevin Ruddy. He was a young and eager deputy district attorney for the state.
2: It wasn't tactically, it was not a difficult case. It was pretty obvious what had occurred. And it was a matter of just being able to present that to a jury.
0: But still, the prosecution was feeling a lot of pressure. This was a case in which an officer died, and so local police agencies were watching closely. Kevin could only imagine what would happen if they weren't able to convince the jury that the robbers were guilty.
2: They're going to come after us with pitchforks and torches.
0: Given the high profile of the case in Riverside County, the judge granted a request to move the trial down an hour and a half south to Vista, California, in San Diego County, where jurors were less likely to have heard of the bank robbery. Debbie remembers having to relocate and room with her boss, Jeannie Painter. They set us up, the public defender's office, got us an apartment in
5: Vista, California, which was very convenient. And so me and Jeannie, uh, of course, she got the bed and I got a cot. <laughs>
0: In the balmy July heat of San Diego, the jury selection got off to a slow start. We can't confirm this, but according to Debbie, it took so long, it even broke a record.
5: For that time, uh, we made the Guinness Book. It was the longest jury selection in history.
0: It took so long, partly because this was one of the first California cases in years with the death penalty on the table. In 1972, the California Supreme Court had ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional.
1: The state's highest court ruled against the death penalty, calling it incompatible with the dignity of man and the
2: judicial process. So people that were on death row got a reprieve. Their cases were reverted to life in prison. That's why Charles Manson was in prison all these years.
0: But in 1977... Three years before the robbery, the death penalty was reinstated in California, and the NORCO-3 trial would be one of the first death penalty trials to test that law in Riverside County. And this meant every juror had to be what's known as death qualified.
2: That means they're not completely against the death penalty, and they're not completely in favor of it. They have an open mind whether or not the death penalty should be an appropriate punishment.
0: Finally, on December 15th, 1981, six months after jury selection had started, 12 jurors and eight alternates were seated. A once very confident prosecution team was finding itself a little uneasy.
2: By the time we were getting six months into the jury, I was really concerned about something, something strange happening. Is something going to go wrong? Are we not going to convict them of everything?
0: The trial began on January 4th, 1982, in Vista, California, almost two years after the Norco Bank robbery. The state would present their case against the robbers first.
2: You don't go into a a lot of detail. You want them to understand that, look, we had a group of people. They considered themselves survivalists.
0: Kevin Reddy, the prosecutor, gave the opening statement. Next to him was a table loaded with weaponry as a visual aid. Bombs, assault rifles, ammunition boxes, everything the Roberts had been armed with that day. He addressed the jury holding an assault rifle in his hand.
2: And you'll take them through, you know, the facts of what occurred. They thought there was going to be Armageddon. And they went about a plan, you know, to be able to run off into the mountains of Utah and survive.
0: After the opening statement, one of the first things the prosecution did was bring in the family members of all the robbers, including members of the Delgado family.
2: One of the things that I wanted to get out of the way was identifying the bank robbers that were, one was killed at the bank, one was killed up in the mountain, okay, the Delgados.
0: The prosecution needed to identify the Norco 3 and the two deceased Delgado brothers to establish that they were friends and gun enthusiasts. Manuel Delgado, Sr., the father of 21-year-old Manny and 17-year-old Billy, who had both died that day, reluctantly agreed to testify.
2: Getting Delgado's father in there was basically laying a subpoena on him. And I remember the person that laid the subpoena on him had a discussion with him. Someone from your family is going to get subpoenaed. Who who do you want it to be? Okay. Okay and and he basically said okay I'll I'll take the subpoena they weren't talking they weren't talking to us you got to keep in mind if you look at you know the delgados both the sons were dead
0: kevin questioned him first briefly and then a defense lawyer took over
2: i put him on the stand had him identify some photographs that's his son i sat down and shut up and then i don't know who the first defense attorney was stood up and Wasn't it true that he had 65 bullet holes in him?
0: The defense was trying to draw attention to the way that Manny died to imply the police had overreacted. Manny had been shot four times, but because of the spray pattern of the shotgun pellets, his body had over 60 wounds on it, according to the autopsy.
2: So right off the bat, you could see what their defense was going to be, that it was a big out-of-control situation caused by the police.
0: We reached out to several members of the Delgado family who declined to be interviewed. But from these brief interactions, it was clear that the loss of two family members is still traumatic. Then, the prosecution began getting into the meat of the case. They presented witness after witness who had been at the scene of the bank and in the chase— They marched through the events of that long day in May with the purpose of laying out evidence, but also clashing over key debated facts of the case. To make their case, both legal teams would need to be familiar with all the guns used that day. The defense and the prosecution would each send someone to test the firearms and analyze their spray patterns. Debbie was the person selected from the defense team. And despite the somber nature of the outing, she managed to have fun and even get along with a member of the prosecution team. Oh, I loved
5: it. <laughs> I loved that part. And actually, it was the first time I ever held a gun and everything. And picture this I have this shotgun in my hand. And then he says, Okay, go ahead and shoot a nice shot. And then he got right up against behind me again and caught me before I fell. We did, we'd had to do different spray patterns is what we were after.
0: Throughout the trial, Debbie was also starting to grow close to George Smith.
5: And to me, he didn't seem harmful. I wasn't scared uh, when I first met him. I wasn't scared at all. His hair was very thick. You know, he's got a big bushel of hair. You know, and then he had these big glasses, these framed glasses. So it even Mm -hmm. made him look kind of nerdish. Did it surprise you that you weren't scared? It did. Yes, it did. Um, Because of
0: all this hoopla. The case was frequently in the news, and her family did not share her enthusiasm over her job on Georgia's defense team. My family, they
5: would get mad at me and... You know, I would try to explain and they just didn't want to hear it. They guys, you know, mean and guilty and murderer. But Debbie says she knew a different George. George was fun. I mean, I hate to say that, but he he's, uh, you know, he's very witty, dry sense of humor, but always cracking a joke. I mean, he always, you know, he always tried to keep me laughing. For some reason.
0: And when she looked at him, she didn't see the image that was in the newspapers. A bewildered man with crazed hair covered in cuts and bruises. She saw the man she helped clean up. George had his hair cut. His beard was trimmed down to a tidy mustache. Debbie would bring him his dark suit and striped tie every morning before court was in session.
5: You know, you don't, you're not looking scraggly or nothing like that when you're going to court. You always make sure your client looks their
0: best. After four months, the trial finally arrived at the most contentious issue of the case, the question of who killed officer Jim Evans in Lytle Creek. To give the jury a visual aid of that winding chase, a prosecutor had commissioned a $1,000 scale model of the mountain that was over six feet long and two feet wide. It was made from chicken wire, a compound plaster called sculptamold, gravel, and featured remarkably accurate figurines of people and cars. Officers who took the stand were asked to painstakingly place a miniature truck and police vehicles all along it throughout their testimony. It was just one of the dizzying aspects of the trial for Deputy Sheriff DJ McCarty.
3: Are you familiar with the movie To Kill a Mockingbird? That's what it looked like. It was packed, packed to the gills. It's got this gigantic bench where the judge sits, uh, all this ornate everything. You've got the press in the hallways, taking pictures, people asking you questions.
0: Deputy Sheriff D.J. McCarty was the officer that wielded the M-16 he wasn't trained to use at the top of the mountain. And from the get-go, he was not happy to be in court.
3: While I'm sitting there, I am getting more and more nervous. And I remember sitting there going, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I looked down and the lapel of my jacket, my suit jacket, is bouncing up in the air with a heartbeat. And I went, I can't do this.
0: The reason DJ was extremely nervous is that unlike most other officers who had to simply recount what they remembered from that day, DJ also had to defend himself. The robber's attorneys were arguing that D.J. was responsible for Officer Jim Evans' death. He had already heard rumors in the press and at the office about this accusation.
3: I've heard people talking, you know, about, hey, had no business being up there with a gun he didn't know how to handle, and uh, did he shoot Evans?
0: This would be a huge deal for the Norco 3's case. The most serious offense they were charged with was killing an officer. The defense argued that Deputy Sheriff D.J. McCarty fired the fatal round involuntarily, shooting the M-16 through his windshield while he was inside the vehicle.
5: Officer Evans was shot by a police officer. You know, um, he, when he turned his head around, he caught it right in the eye.
0: And um, it killed him instantly. To get to the bottom of this, both legal teams needed D.J. to hand over part of the evidence that had been oddly gifted to him after the shootout.
3: My buddies at Fontana Station took the windshield out, had the windshield bullet holes cut out of it and presented to me.
0: This morbid memento held the answer to whether the bullet in the windshield came from within or outside of the vehicle.
3: So they sent that to the labs, uh, sent it back east somewhere to prove that uh, they're trying to say that I shot out the window.
0: A criminalist would later testify that the bullet holes in the window had definitely come from the outside, not from D.J.
3: And then they tried to do the thing that uh, the bullet that was in Evans's head was my bullet because it was so uh, deformed that you couldn't do ballistics
0: on it. The defense and the prosecution fought on and on over this. They both put chemists on the stand with opposing opinions. To conclude this question of who killed Jim Evans, the judge did something unusual. He requested that the jury make a special finding to determine the killer. It was presented like a multiple choice quiz. The jury could vote between any of the surviving robbers, the late Manny Delgado, a police officer, or they could say that they couldn't determine beyond a reasonable doubt. A vote would determine who was responsible for Jim Evans' death. The ballot that he would get back from the jury would have a checkmark next to one name, Manny Delgado. Manny was the older Delgado brother who died in Lytle Creek. This was a win for Russ, Chris, and George because at least they weren't seen as the direct murderers of Jim Evans. be right back.
3: I'm LA's senior education reporter, Mariana Dale. The communities that are more marginalized
0: or that do not have access are the ones that are in most need. I help families understand, navigate, and engage with the forces that shape education from kindergarten through high school. How
2: do I explain to my daughter that the same day you got to celebrate a birthday,
3: you got to celebrate the day your mama left?
0: And I make space for students to tell their own stories.
3: LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism.
0: We're back. The NORCO-3 trial was marked by a contentious atmosphere between the prosecution and the defense that at times would descend into the absurd. DJ McCarty says that when he was on the stand, the robbers antagonized him from the defense table.
3: Just some of the stupidest things, uh, one of them shot a rubber band at me while I was sitting on the stand. Uh, They would put their hands in certain positions while I was testifying and flip me off.
0: At another point during an argument between the district attorney and a defense lawyer, they began flinging office supplies at each other in front of the jury. I would admonish all counsel, said the judge. Don't throw pencils. And they
5: just developed a hatred, I think, for one another because they just, they pounded each other.
0: It was called the pencil-fencing incident in the press.
2: And one time, the judge photographed the jury.
0: Kevin Ruddy, the prosecutor, says that one time, the judge, in the middle of testimony, took out his own camera.
2: Well, this defense attorney was examining a witness. And all of a sudden, the judge pops up with his camera and takes a picture of the jury. <laughs> and, and so the attorney says, Your Honor, I object. I'm, I'm asking questions of this witness. The judge won't. Oh, I just wanted to get a picture of the jury. So the jury was looking at him and the camera and not the witness on the stand. (laughs) It's the only time I agreed with one of the defense attorney's objections.
0: In late April of 1982, the case would almost be derailed by a mistrial. It had nothing to do with what happened during the bank robbery. Instead, the conflict was over George's investigator, Jeannie Painter.
5: Jeannie was tall. She was a blonde hair, and I would say she was uh, 5'9",
0: probably. Jeannie worked on George Smith's defense, and during the trial, she lived with her assistant, Debbie Rose. And she looked like Twiggy, uh,
5: and that's no joke. She uh, also wore glasses, uh, framed glasses, and very smart. She always found a lot of good case law,
0: One day, Jeannie Painter was in the middle of a visit with George Smith when the Vista jail deputies suddenly ejected her. They wouldn't give her a reason why, but later, a jail employee reported seeing her engage in, quote, suspicious activity of a sexual nature, end quote, with George in the visitor's booth. The jail report was leaked to the press. Debbie says she remembered Jeannie talking to George on the phone.
5: You know, they couldn't couldn't hide it because I was living there. And he would call her on the phone and, you know, and I could tell, you know, by, you can tell by the
0: tone. Reporters dug up that Jeannie had been previously married to a former client who was serving time for second-degree murder. Jeannie was placed on leave from the Public Defender's Office and George's lawyer moved for a mistrial, citing the negative publicity. She would be dismissed from the Public Defender's Office on May 13, 1982. But she would continue to work as a private investigator for George Smith's case.
2: So in some respects, it really didn't surprise me. Thinking about it, it was, well, what's next? Because the case got, the case was already strange enough.
0: And it would get stranger. In a risky gamble to secure a not guilty verdict, Chris Harvin and his lawyer decided to tell an alternative story of what happened the day of the robbery.
2: When he was interviewed by the police, he admitted being involved, going to the bank robbery and everything. He gets on the stand and basically says that he got out of the van.
0: Chris would take the stand and would testify, contrary to his previous comments to police, that he was actually never at the bank that day. And in fact, someone else had done the things he was accused of along with George Smith and Russ Harvin.
2: And it was Jerry Cohen who was the third guy inside the bank.
0: He said a man named Jerry Cohen had been a part of their plan. He said he was a man with a bobbed Prince Valiant-style haircut, who, quote, always had a good tan, end quote. The problem was Chris had never mentioned a Jerry Cohen before. None of the robbers had.
2: And apparently he was asked, well, why didn't you say this to the police? First off, I didn't trust the police, you know?
0: Chris said that he had refused to be part of the bank robbery, that instead Jerry Cohen had been the one in the bank. His lawyer presented witnesses that had heard the robbers call out the name Jerry inside the bank.
5: By God, where they came up with that, I have no idea. Let's... Pull someone out of the sky,
0: I guess. He said the other robbers had forced him to drive their yellow truck into the wilderness where they surrendered.
2: You know, I've heard some big ones, okay, even at that point in time. And this was just amazing.
0: This introduction of another man who did the robbery who hadn't been caught and was still at large, it wasn't just an outlandish concept. It would seriously damage the other two robbers' case. Because when Chris was questioned about Jerry Cohen on the stand, he was also questioned about this new testimony that directly contradicted what he had told the police on tape. And on tape, he had directly implicated his friend George and his brother Russ in the crimes of that day.
4: Who ran the show? Somebody was running the show, man. George is the one that ran the whole show, told us what we were going to do, what bank we were going to See, that's George's bank, right? Cased it out, you know, and he was in there doing the bank work.
0: It was a blow to Russ and George.
2: The next day, he's in the courtroom and he has a a bruise on his face. And they put him on the stand and he said he got beat up in the jail because now they're calling him a snitch.
0: Chris Harvin would only say inmates had beaten him, saying, they told me to shut up and I would better stay off the stand. On July 8th, 1982, after an exhausting year of bitter-arguing antics and upsetting testimony, all the evidence was given and the trial was coming to a close. There had been more than 200 witnesses. Before the jury was sequestered, when all of the evidence was presented, how were you feeling? How was the team feeling?
2: Well, the thing is when you when you do the arguments, you know, when you listen to it, all you you could really see that the defense really had nothing to say. You know, they they did have something to say in terms of what gun fired the fatal shot for Jim Evans, but in terms of minimizing the conduct of any of the defendants, they couldn't do it.
0: At this stage in the game, the defense's investment was more than just professional. I mean, I grew a liking
5: to them as well. You know, I was there every day. I mean, you don't, you know, see them every day without developing some type of friendship. And how did you feel your chances were? Um, You never know with the
0: jury. Sometimes they looked bewildered. The jury would deliberate for 15 days.
2: And so finally, one time about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we get word that they have verdicts.
0: Jail guards promptly brought the defendants their suits while attorneys hopped into their cars and rushed to the courthouse. By 7.45 p.m., the spectator galley was crammed with friends and family members of the defendants, some who had anxiously attended every single day of the trial for six grueling months. George slumped his head on the table as the foreman began to read. And
5: I remember um, all I kept hearing and it started ringing in my ears is guilty. Guilty. It's like guilty on, on everything, even the littlest things. It, like I said, it, it, it rang actually was ringing in my ears. guilty, guilty.
0: Debbie turned her attention to the prosecution, who she knew would be happy to hear these results.
5: They were practically jumping up and down, hearing all those guilties, and they were doing, you know, fist pumps, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Kevin Ruddy of the prosecution remembers that moment.
2: We were relieved. You know, we didn't screw up.
0: Even if the jury did not think any of the Norco 3 had shot the final round that killed Officer Evans, they still found them responsible for his death. The Norco 3 were found guilty on all charges, but the most important ruling was still to be announced. The Norco 3 would return to court and await their fate to learn whether they would get life in prison without parole or the death penalty. Whether they would live or die. Next time on Norco Eighty. Hello.
4: Hello, is is Antonio?
0: Yes. Hi, George. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, good. Um,
4: Set
0: up. Yes, we're recording right now. George Smith grants us his first ever recorded interview.
4: I've kept my silence
1: because I was thinking this thing would just go away. But obviously it hasn't. And there are things that should be said.
0: Next week, our conversation. The is written and produced by me, Antonia Cerejido, and by Sofia paliza Carr. The show is a production of LAS Studios in collaboration with Futuro Studios. Leo G. is the executive producer for LAS Studios. Marlon Bishop is the executive producer for Futuro Studios. Audrey Quinn is our editor. Joaquin Kotler is our associate producer. Juan Diego Ramirez is our production assistant. Maria Alexa Cavanaugh is our intern. Fact-checking by Amy Tardif. Engineering by Stephanie LeBeau. Original music by Zach Robinson. This podcast is based on the book Norco 80 by Peter Houlihan. Our website is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding, thanks to the team at Elias Studios including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. If you want to hear more Norco 80, please follow or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, the iHeart app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review the show.
3: Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing.
5: Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at com slash events. See you there.
0: As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water.